You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello in podcast land. Welcome back to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanok Teller. Here we're going to give a very quick review so that we can seamlessly conclude what we've been talking about for the last two episodes. We got sidetracked talking about the Balfour Declaration and the significant role that Rav Cook played in the birth of the State of Israel. And from there we get on to the story of the Yale Five, which occurred in the academic school year of 1995-1996, when Yale University introduced a requirement that all freshmen sophomores had to live in a co-ed dormitory without single-sex bathrooms. This led five Yale students, which ultimately turned out to be four because one of them married early to get out of this requirement because married students were not required to live on campus. So these four students, better known as the Yale Five, five Orthodox young teenagers, violated that sacrosanct of Jewish American history of never sticking your head above the crowd, and they tried to negotiate with Yale administration to be absolved from the requirement to live on campus because they were not be comfortable and they felt it was a violation of all modesty to live in a place that was profligate in its prom- promiscuity. There were hookups and there were uh, no strings attached and they couldn't live in such an environment. They wanted to live off campus and Yale said no, except unless if they would pay for the dormitory housing on school and live off campus. This was an infuriating solution, but as far as they were concerned, it was a solution. They were prepared to do so, but one of the Yale Five said, no way. We are not going to pay for something, waste and hemorrhage money over something which we should not be paying for in the beginning. We don't want to contribute money to give our agreement to such a promiscuous lifestyle, which is found all the time in a co-ed dormitory. And not only that, did Yale, Yale also did many things to encourage a lifestyle which was uh, very detrimental for anyone who wanted to maintain even a modicum of chastity. I, I'm not so comfortable going through all the details, but any appurtenance that was necessary for this, they had. Uh, there was such a thing as a sexile. You could be banished from your room if your neighbor wanted to ent- entertain someone from the, the opposite sex. And again and again, why go through all this ad nauseum, which I'd rather not even discuss. But that was the situation in Yale. I should mention in the same breath that Yale did make accommodations for religious students. They allowed them to have a mechanical lock on their dorm rooms. They allowed them to use a kosher meal plan. But in this idea to live in a dormitory that was co-ed, they found no exception. Despite the fact this contradicted other policies where they made exceptions, So the Yale Five felt they had no other recourse after trying to negotiate with the student administration, pardon me, with the administration of the college. They kept getting nixed, and so they finally took them to court for they felt that their constitutional rights were being abused. So last time we discussed how, by and large, the press were extremely anti-Yale Five, but on the other hand, the staunchly observant Jewish groups were proud of their heroic stand on behalf of modesty and traditional values. They were also joined by the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights and other religious and conservative groups. The Yale Five had become the cause celebre of the liberals who maligned and the conservatives who commended. 
Agudath Israel, which is an Orthodox Jewish group, featured an article by Rabbi Chaim David Zwibel, and this is what he wrote, quote, First, and certainly, and in certain ways foremost, the entire Orthodox community, including those who would never even consider college, let alone Yale, as an acceptable option for themselves or their children, should take pride in the firm stance taken by these five students. Alone among their many Jewish and Gentile peers, these young men and women have dared to object to the objectionable. In so doing, they have proclaimed for all the world to hear that Judaism demands of its adherents a code of moral conduct totally incompatible with the promiscuous atmosphere that prevails in modern-day college dormitory. The honor of heaven has been enhanced, and for this, we can all celebrate. On September 10, 1997, the president of the above-mentioned organization, Agudath Israel, Rabbi Moshe Scherer, wrote to Dean, Dean Broadhead of Yale, and he said, quote, Frankly, I would have thought that Yale would take great pride in having students who are prepared to take a stand on principle against the prevailing tide of premaritable promiscuity. Young men and women who display that type of moral gumption in today's troubled times deserves encouragement and support, not stubborn resistance. Is it really Yale's best interest, or society's, to present these students with the Hobson's choice of abandoning their moral principles or abandoning their dream of attending Yale? A similar protest was voiced by Dr. William Donahue, president of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights. Bill Donahue is a very famous and hardworking activist for Catholic rights, known for all of the work that he does on behalf of morality and the interest of Catholic rights. In a letter dated September 23, 1997, to the university president, he questioned, I do not see how it can be reasonably be maintained that students can be expected to maintain their religious commitments while being subjected to an environment that is so antithetical to their beliefs. Moreover, I do not see how forcing them to live on campus would ever service the alleged objectives set by Yale. Finally, if diversity allows for pluralism, then how can this end be met when the policies are implemented that eviscerate its meaning? In July 1998, the case finally came to court, and Judge Alfredo Covello and the U.S. District Court in Hartford, Connecticut, ruled against the Yale Five. The judge concluded in words that were reminiscent of Dean Trachtenberg's rule to the students when they appealed, her to, appealed to her to let them live off campus, and the judge said, quote, The plaintiffs could have opted to attend a different college or university if they were not satisfied with Yale's housing policy. Nathan Lewin, the famous Washington lawyer, super lawyer, appealed the case to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, located in New York City. His argument was that the requirement to force Yale students to live in co-ed dorms was the same as barring Orthodox students from attending Yale. Yale granted exemptions to other students while denying them to Orthodox Jews. Mr. Lewin's reasoning and substantiation seemed to have been compelling, but the judges felt otherwise, confirming that football adage on any given Sunday. The court feared that giving in to this grievance would open the floodgates to other objections, endless objections, by religious groups claiming that their religious rights had been violated. 
Mr. Lewin nobly lost the value, but it is not clear that he lost the war. The public discourse that resulted from this case was a victory of sorts for the cause of modesty. The challenge evoked much negative publicity, but it also generated reckoning that was beneficial for many. Okay, we're done with Yale, and we go back to Rav Cook, and we're going to conclude. Rav Cook, who was in Britain, set the record straight. And even though those Jewish parliamentarians claimed that there was no requirement for the state of Israel or land of Israel to be involved in Judaism, Rav Cook set the record straight. He published a statement that was distributed throughout Jewish London, clarifying the role of the land of Israel within Judaism. And he also appealed to the conscience of the Gentiles to enable the Jews to return to their homeland from which they were banished. It was said that his essay in activism was instrumental in the mind of the public and in the chambers of parliament. Playing a role in the issuance of the Balfour Declaration, it was clear to Rav Cook that he ended up being exiled from Israel for this providential purpose. A person, and here I'm referring to you, the listeners, and to myself, who despite their very best efforts are denied the ability to travel to where they wish to go, we must understand that this is obviously the divine will and make peace with it. Ultimately, we understand that this was best for us. For example, if you rush and rush to catch a bus and you just miss it, then this was, this, this was obviously designed by God. Who knows? Maybe had you been on the bus, you would have been forced to hear gossip or slander that you would have been so much happier to avoid listening to. And just today, when I said today, hours ago, a fellow told me a story just this evening. His name is Simon Swidlow. He said he was going to work in Manhattan, and he takes every day, he takes the 714 train, and uh, there's an announcement as he's waiting, the train is delayed, delayed, and finally they said the train is going to be even further delayed because a branch had uh, fallen onto the train track. Then as everyone's getting aggravated, they have to get to work, and this guy's really blowing a gut, they get another message in the trains in the train station that the train was canceled because of this a branch. Uh, he was very angry. It just turned out that that day was September was September eleventh, uh, and because of that branch, he didn't go to work, and was not a victim of the twin towers when they came down. God has his 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 design, and it was very clear to Rav Cook and to his son who succeeded from him that the whole reason that he was exiled from Israel and ended up in England was so that he could play this minor role in the issuance of the Balfour Declaration. After the conclusion of World War I, Rav Cook returned to Israel, and then he established the chief rabbinate to which he was elected as the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi from 1919 till his death in 1935. Rav Cook viewed the establishment of the chief rabbinate as a vehicle for worldwide spiritual leadership 
and not to be a bureaucratic apparatus. In 1924, Rav Cook founded the Merkaz Arab Yeshiva in his home in Jerusalem, which contained innovations such as the classes were conducted in Hebrew. Believe it or not, that was a first. And it also included Jewish thought, Machshava, as part of the curriculum. In 1924, Rav Cook traveled to the United States as head of a rabbinical delegation, and while there, he received an honorary citizenship of New York City. His visit to the United States took on all the trappings of a triumphal tour. Ruff Cook was vehement in his opposition to the British mandatory government in Israel, and he was incensed over the Zionist movement's agreement to relinquish ownership of the Western Wall in lieu of only prayer rites. Ruff Cook said, better I should say he denounced, he said, quote, no one, he declared, possesses that right of attorney. When Rav Kook passed away on the 3rd of Elul, Elul meaning the Jewish month, which usually corresponds to September 1935, it was on the very date that he arrived in Israel 31 years earlier. Indeed, on his tombstone it says, Gimel Elul, on the 3rd of Elul, the Jewish month, he arrived in Israel, and on that very date he ascended to heaven 31 years later. And when he passed away, a quarter of all the Jewish residents in Israel attended his funeral. His impact was immediately acknowledged with first the establishment of Moshav Kfaroeh. Kfaroeh is the initials of his name in Hebrew, so a settlement was established in his memory, and also a publishing house, Musadar of Cook. And ever since, the memory of this visionary has only increased. Most every Israeli knows of Rav Cook's famous comment, as the Holy Temple was destroyed according to rabbinic tradition, because of baseless hatred, it will only be rebuilt through basis love of one's fellow person. Next week there'll be a brand new episode, for we've complete we've completed all of our tangents. I look forward to seeing you this coming week. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.